Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, where you can hear classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these messages, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message and to practically apply it to life. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. What is that? That's seeing the heart of God, the heart of God towards His people. It is the kind of love that you and I cannot begin to fathom, my friends. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the Word, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Judges in the 10th chapter. Today our study will be verses 6 through 16, but not to skip over any verses, I want to read the first five verses, and then we'll read on through verse 16 of Judges chapter 10. So follow along as I read, would you? After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth-Jer. When Jer died, he was buried in Camon. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Asherahs, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they opposed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Amorites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Let's pray and ask God to help us now as we study his word. Our Father... Speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The spring before my senior year, excuse me, the spring before my sophomore year in high school, they had an announcement at the high school that I went to saying anybody interested in running cross country should show up at this meeting. And I thought, although I had never run cross country in my entire life, you know, that would be a great thing. It'll help prepare me for basketball season. I will go and and run cross country. And so at that spring meeting, which was preparing you for that summer to get in shape for the next fall's cross-country season, the coach very enthusiastically challenged the group of about 20 guys sitting there and said, I really challenge you to consider how many miles you'll run this summer. And he had different awards that he was going to give out in the fall before practice started for people that did such. And so the first goal was to run a 1,000 miles that summer. Now, that was in about a 12-week period, and he had it all broken down, which that meant you had to run just a little over 10 miles a day. You remember, I was not running at all. (laughs) 
And then there was another goal of 750, and another goal of 500, and another goal of 300. And the 300 was like for those that just were, you know, scum of the earth. It was the way it was presented. But the 1,000 was going to be the apple of the coach's eye. And so I, I, in my youthful zeal, which I wish I would have lost more of by this time, but I haven't, said, oh, I said to my buddy, we can do that. Sure, I mean, 10 miles a day, we can do it. And so I signed myself up for the 1,000-mile club. Well, do you know that the first day I got out on the street where I lived, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran. And I could not wait for my mom to get home because she was going to drive in the car and find out how far I had gone. <laughs> and she got in the car and found out that I had gone 1.9 miles. <laughs> and I was disheartened. One day, that whole summer, one day, I made 10 miles. One day. But it was just not the thing for me. <laughs> but I made these great promises and didn't follow through is what I want to tell you. My junior year in high school is the year that I got my license. And when you get your license, you're allowed usually at those times to start to date. And so I started to date one girl in particular. And she would say to me, are, are you really liking just me? And I would say, well, of course, you know, just you. Of course, what she didn't know is, you know, a car can travel beyond the school range of the local school district, and I, w I would get to know some of the kids from other schools and things, and I would date other girls. And one day, she found out about all that, and she didn't like it because I hadn't kept my promise. Speaking about promise, let me go to my senior year. My senior year, switching subjects one more time, I walked the aisle at the church that I went to six times my senior year. Six times I came forward. They had a, it was a church where they gave altar calls. And I walk forward and I say things like this, I'm tired of being a 90% Christian, I want to be a 100% Christian. I, it, it's not enough, I, I've got to have more. And, and I, I'm going to live more. And I would hear a message that was from God's Word, it would fire up my heart, I would decide that I was going to do these great things, and usually by Tuesday it all wore off, and I was right back doing the things that I had done again and again. And the reason I tell you about that is right here in Judges chapter 10. Normally we go through the text and then I explain to you what the main point of the text is, but I want to show you the main point of the text at the beginning, and that is this, God's way with His people. Especially, I want you to see from verse 6, that this, God's people are unfaithful. Now I want you to know the story of the Bible is a story that is pretty much the same again and again. And that is this, God's people fail. We do not stand up and sing at this church, great is our faithfulness to you, O God. We stand up and sing at this church, great is your faithfulness to us. And the story of the Bible is a story about man's failures and about God's faithfulness. And I want you to notice verse 6 because this continual cycle of sin in the book of Judges is at, is at, at the height. It's, the, it's, it's, it's not exaggerated, but the list is long to show you how bad Israel was. Look at verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil. In the eyes of the Lord, they served the Baals and the Asheroths. Remember, this was a wicked practice with all kinds of uh, immorality going on at the, in the temple. And it says this. That it says they served the Baals, the Asherahs, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And the Israelites forsook the Lord no longer served them. Hey, this wasn't that they just went after one nation's gods. Here you have a plethora of gods that Israel is just hankering after. Going after this one, going after that one. All kinds of twisted perversions of the truth is what's going on here. So God's 
sees this, and of course this is a description of what goes on throughout Judges. God's people are unfaithful. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen stands up to deliver a sermon that he was stoned for at the end, he says, Israel was unfaithful and God was faithful. And this is the story of your life and my life. And that is this, we are unfaithful, we can't claim our faithfulness. God is faithful to us. But as, as a result of God's people being unfaithful, God becomes angry. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. This is again the theme of Judges. Look at this. It says, He became angry with them, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, please understand something, friends. God so loved the world that He gave. You see, God's love is not some wishy, willy-nilly, good feeling up and down the back type of, well, I, I have this feeling for you. God's love is the love that leads Him to action. And so is God's anger, because God's anger is perfect. And the anger of Jehovah God towards His people does something, just like His love does something. And His anger means this, He sells them. He sells them. And just to get you a feel for where we're headed in the book of Judges, He sells them to the Philistines, which there's going to be a judge by the name of Samson coming up. And we're going to study Samson for several weeks, and that's chapters 13 through 16. And He also sells them to the Amorites, which is what we're going to study now in verses chapters 10 through 12. And what does he do when he sells them? Well, listen to this. He sells them so that the people are vexed and oppressed. For, the text says for 18 years they were in great distress. In fact, I want you to see the way <laughs> the text describes how bad this time was. Look at verse 8. It says he sold them into the hands, verse 7, who that year shattered and crushed them. This is a different translation. Vexed and oppressed. The word shattered there. I want to make sure you see this. It means to dash to pieces. And the word oppressed, see that word right there, oppressed? Or the, or the word um, here, crushed in the King in the New International Version? That is the word found in chapter 9, verse 53, where the woman of Thebes drops the millstone out of the tower and crushes Abimelech's head. That's the last place that word was used, the word oppressed there. And what it means is, God sells Israel to these foreign nations, and these foreign nations treat them worse than dirt. They, they treat them terrible. It, this is a vicious oppression. This is like what is going on in some of the places of the world right now where you hear about the dead bodies floating down the streams and about people starving to death and what Hitler did to the Jews. It's that same kind of thing. This is a terrible oppression that was happening by, at the hand of the Philistines and the Amorites during this time. And the text goes on to say, look at these ominous words in verse 9. It says, the Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. They were tremendously suffering. They were in terrible straits. They, first, and by the way, all the different places and judges, they happened in different areas of the country. It started to the south. It went to the north. This one is on the east of the Jordan, where the two and a half tribes are. But the oppression gets so bad that they enter into the land of Canaan. They cross the Jordan, and they enter into this land. And so the people are in tremendous trouble. And notice what else happens in the book of Judges? What has happened every single time as we've been studying together? Well, this. The people cry out for help. Look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, this. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Hey, listen, here's a little bit of hope. For the first time in the book of Judges, you get a little bit. You get a little bit of confession of sin. You get a little bit of what we would call maybe repentance or humility. And that is they cry out, look it, we're in big trouble, help us, Lord! Lord, help us, we've been wrong! All the other times throughout Judges, they're just going like this, Lord, help us, help us, look at the condition we're in. But now they say, we've been wrong. That's encouraging. And, and, and we're starting to say, hey, maybe they're starting to learn something. 
And by the way, it, it is very interesting to notice this, by the way. Never in the book of Judges do you see this. God's people were so blessed, they were so prosperous, they had everything that they couldn't take it anymore, and they cried out to God for help. You see, God knows what's best for His people, and one of the things that God does is God brings trouble into the life of His people. Why, why is the reason for this, by the way? Why does He sell them to the Amorites, to the Philistines? Why are they vexed and oppressed or, or crushed and oppressed? For 18 years, and why are they in great distress? I mean, there was wailing and agony going on in Israel. Why? Is it because God says, all right, you didn't do right. Get out of here. I don't want nothing to do with you. No. It's because he loves his people, and he knows that when he puts you into a trial or into a difficult spot, it's to wake you up. And I guarantee you there are people in this auditorium right now that are in trouble. I don't know what it is. It could be various sundry. It could be in your family. It could be at work. It could be financial. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you this. God will not waste that trouble. He is bringing some trouble into your life, and there's been some oppression, and you may be in great distress, and i got news for you, friends. It is to turn you around to cry out and to start to say, I will change my ways, and to get, to get your attention. But this time, when God's people cry out, every other time, what has happened in the book of Judges? Do you know? Every other time, God has sent a judge or he has sent a prophet. One time with Gideon, he sent a prophet, then a judge. But every other time, he sent a deliverer. But I want you to notice that this time, he makes a threat to his people. And I want you to look with me down to verse 11. Look what it says. The Lord replied. This is what the Lord says now to when they say, We've sinned! Help us, Lord, help us! Look at verse 11. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians... The Amalekites, the Mennonites oppressed you. You cried to me for help, but I didn't. But in a, did I not save you from their hands? Hey, I saved you. Every other time you've called out, I've delivered you. But look at verse 13. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you. You see, here's what God says. I've heard this story before. I've seen this song and dance more than once. You're practicing bomb shelter religion. It goes like this. God will help you in your time of trouble. He's incredibly naive and hopelessly soft. He's like a great warm vending machine in the sky, says Riddell Ralph Davis, into which you need only to drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. Religion is a great game. You only need to know a few rules, and Yahweh is a great God if you happen to need Him and want to use Him. You see, this is the attitude. Not only, listen friends, this is so important to know this. Not only is the tendency of all of our hearts to turn away from God and to have amnesia and forget what He has done for us, but also the tendency of our hearts are this. After we have sinned, to be very light in our approach back to God and to say, hey, God has to forgive me. He's always done in the past. He'll have to keep doing it. And we take, now listen, it's a tremendous thing. We don't want to do this here. And you don't want to do it in your life. And that is this, you take God's mercy for granted. You go around thinking, oh, he's forgiven me every other time. I'll do it. Because here God makes a warning to his people. And the one thing that religion, and when I say, when I use the word religion, I'm talking about a, 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 a doing religious things without a relationship with God. And the one thing that religion always makes you forget is that the God of the Bible wants and desires and has provided for us to have a personal relationship with him and sin everybody listen to me sin is not the breaking of the rules of some organization it's not going against the tendency of the church sin is not violating something that pastor Kaufman says is wrong sin is a personal offense 
against a living God who has a relationship with you in the covenant of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about sin when God's people sin. And it is a terrible thing to do. And God is, the New Testament says we can quench the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says things like this, that it is really a serious thing to sin against God. And yet we live in a day and an age in which no one seems to care. We live in a day and age in which, well, God will forgive me, that's God's job. As if the whole thing about God is this, He's just supposed to go around forgiving. That's all He's supposed to do. We sin, He forgives. That's sort of the, that's sort of the rules, isn't it? See? Now listen, God makes this threat to His people, and He says things like this, why should I help you? Every time I've helped you in the past, you've turned right around, you've forsaken me, you've served other gods. Do you know who this sounds like? Just to show you that when you have a relationship with God, part of the deal is he takes his end of the bargain seriously. And one thing I want you to know about this thread is this. It sounds to me like a jilted lover, in a way. It also sounds to me like the wife of an abuser who has heard from her husband, who has abused her again and again throughout the years, as he weeps at her feet, oh honey, please take me back this one time, and I won't do it again. Or it may sound like the spouse of an alcoholic, who has lost jobs and, 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 and wasted his or her life, and, and ruined himself or herself because of it, and goes back to the wife again and again, and saying, oh I'll change, please give me one more chance. And the wife goes, I've heard this song and dance before. Why, why should I believe you now? And God turns to us, his people, and says, what are you doing? I've heard this so many times. What do you mean? And friends, I'll tell you, there's a difference, by the way. Please listen, there's a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. And what Israel has done, according to the Scriptures, is gone a-whoring after other gods, forsaking God. And I want you to see something. I want you to see the heart of God that is revealed here. It's a personal affront to Him. One thing it seems to me, when people fall into sin, they say, oh, I just sort of forgot. And one of the things that you need to remember when you're tempted, Joseph, when he was tempted, he said this, how could I do this wicked thing against God? And one of the things we've lost in Christianity today is the personal nature that as you and God have entered a covenant relationship. And that, and that God basically has been wed to you through Jesus Christ and you are now His bride. And He has entered into a relationship and the thing that Christians have forgotten is it's a serious thing to go around breaking covenant promises. And you better take heed. It's important that we pay attention to this. In fact, I want you to see from the Scriptures how again and again this is mentioned. Look with me at Hosea and look what he says. Come, let us return to the Lord. Now, th this is Israel talking. Flippant Israel. They've been in sin and here's the flippancy of not taking your sin serious. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he'll heal us. He has injured us just like he did to these people and judges we're reading about. But, you know, he's injured, but he'll bind up our wounds. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as, as the sun rises, he will appear. Hey, did you get this? God's a sure thing. As, as surely as the sun rises, we can go back and confess. He'll be there again. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And look what God says. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. You, know, you, you ever walk out to get the paper in the early morning at your house, and if you have your socks on or you're barefoot, you walk across the yard, and what happens in the early morning in the summertime? 
Your feet get all sopping wet. What happens if you wait two hours later to go get it? You walk out there and your feet are perfectly dry. Why? Because the morning dew just lasts for a short period of time and the sun dries it up immediately and it's gone. And God says, your love to me is like the morning dew. And let me just ask, how many times have you made some kind of commitment to the Lord and never followed through? How many times have you said, okay, Lord, I'm going to start having devotions. Okay, Lord, I'm going to change in some area. Only to just break that promise. You see, we sing this song, don't we, in the church? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And throughout Judges, you've got statements like this. Look at, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of, out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them, and they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods, serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. We rightfully sing, should say sing, not sin, okay? We rightfully sing and rejoice in God's faithfulness to us, but not in ours to Him. And we can rejoice in God's faithfulness to us, but we don't rejoice in, 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 in uh, our faithfulness because we don't have anything to brag about. Look at, the, look at this, look at this quickly. We're, I'll skip over some of these verses, there's many of them, but I'll skip over some of them, but look at this. He was merciful. He forgave their iniquities. He did not destroy them. Time after time, He restrained His anger and did not stir up His full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against Him in the desert and grieved Him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember His power the day He redeemed them from the oppressor. It's still true today, friends. Believers who once rejoiced and delighted in God, who once were grateful for His wonderful salvation, who once were willing to serve Him in any way they possibly could, they now are off complaining and griping and cold-hearted. In fact, I stop and I wonder, I say, Lord, are Your promises true? If Your promises are true, why are so many Christians complaining against You? How could it be that so many Christians don't have gratefulness overflowing in their heart? And the reason is not that God isn't faithful, the reason is that man is unfaithful. And the, this whole idea today, believe in yourself and trust in yourself and hope in yourself, is absolutely as unbiblical and from the very voice of the devil as anything that you could ever hear. The testimony of the Word of God that you're seeing here in Judges is consistent throughout. We're the ones that need Him and need to repent and humble ourselves before Him because He's faithful to us. And that's why pride and Christian ministry, and that's why pride and Christian life cannot go hand in hand. Because there is the natural humbling as we see again and again our, our faithlessness. That's why I say to you, talk to a Christian that has lived for the Lord for any amount of time, and you will see a natural, supernatural, I guess you should say it, humility in them. In fact, one more. Here's the writer to the Hebrews. He says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew you and yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. You'll be richly rewarded. Here the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament is calling the Christians back to remember how you used to be dedicated to the Lord. Now are you still there? And can I call your attention to the book of Revelation? Christ to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. 
You've lost your first love. It's a fear. It is a fear in my own heart. It's a fear. I want to tell you, I live with it on a regular basis. And that is a fear, and I've, I've shared it with some of you before, but I just, I tell you, please don't let me lose it. And that is a fear that, you know, I'll just do ministry. I'll just do the pastoral thing. I'll just sort of go through the motions. And you don't catch this. You catch in that what God is saying to these people, hey, I saved you again and again. You keep hurting me. You keep rebelling against me. Why are you so unfaithful? Why do you keep going to whoring and doing your own thing? You see, friends, again and again, the Scripture says that one man writes it like this. God says here in this passage, and what are we talking about? Just get us back to where we were, and that is this. God makes this threat to His people. And listen to what this man says. He says, I will not save you any longer. You have, Yahweh seems to say, Yahweh seems to say, chosen gods. Go to those gods in your jam. They'll save you, but don't come yammering back to me in one of these repentance acts. Israel's sin and judges is not a cycle, but a plunge which persisted in will place her beyond Yahweh's help. Israel must wake up to her peril. Yahweh is saying that Israel is on the edge of becoming an abandoned people. Sheer tragedy is when people become, listen, sheer tragedy is when people become so accustomed to the mercy of God that they despise it. Do you hear that? We become so accustomed to the mercy of God that we despise it, even and especially in the act of seeking it. Has the sin that so easily besets you crept into your life again and again and again and again over the years? Are you hot for a few days and then cold for several? When things go well, do you forget what God has done? And then as soon as trouble comes in your life, do you race back? Oh, Lord, help me! You see, God says to His people, why don't you go to those gods and see if they can help you? Do you remember, some of you do, the late 60s, early 70s, and the anti-authority movement that was in our country? I can remember clear as the bell as a little boy watching the same billboard for about a year on 465 in Indianapolis on the east side of town. And it was put up by a law enforcement agency and it said this. If the pigs are so bad, that was the word used for the police, do you remember? If the pigs are so bad, next time you're in trouble, call a hippie. (laughs) Tell you, that's what God says here. He says, look, you don't want me. The only time you want me is when you're in trouble. Let me ask anybody here. What if you had a relationship with somebody that the only time that that person wanted to be with you was when they were asking you for help? What would you think? God says, you don't want me. You only want me when you're in trouble. But the God's people do something wise here. They don't give up. Look at verses 15 and 16a. Look what it says. 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Hey, hey, something big's happening here. Israel's actually repenting. Change is taking place. They, they plead for help. Okay, Lord, we've sinned. Do whatever you think best. Please rescue us now. And they got rid of their foreign gods and they started to serve the Lord. Well, I'll tell you, that's pretty exciting, but here's the best part of this whole message. Are you ready? This point right here, you can delight in it. Look at verse 16. B. Look what it says. After they do this, look what God says. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. What I want you to see from the book of Judges is God's heart towards you. God's heart towards you. God's heart towards his people. And friends, what is that? That is this. God's compassion is not tied to Israel's repentance 
though we do need to repent, and repentance is right and proper, please understand, it's not like if you look at verse 10, they sort of repented, and then when you get down to verse 15, they really repented, and God said, all right, now you didn't really repent last time, but now that's not what is going on here. What is going on here is this, that, that the God's compassion is not based on the, the kind of repenting that we do, and by the way, you can rejoice in this, God's compassion is not based on the kind of repentance that we do, and I will tell you why that's so important to know, but please get this. Repentance that is biblical. Now please notice, repentance that is biblical, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. The reason we know that is this. If you look down to verse 16 again, B, it says this, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. It doesn't say that he took their repentance and goes, okay, now that they've really repented, I will change. Here is the very heart of God towards his people. He looks down and sees people crying out under the misery that their own sin has caused, and he says, I will be gracious to you. In fact, please get this. Repentance is a divine demand, but it places its hope in divine grace rather than in human sorrow, and recognizes that any benefit received is not properly coerced, but freely given. Boy, I hope you see that. I tell you, if you don't understand this, you'll miss the heart and soul of what biblical Christianity is about. Biblical Christianity is not that we somehow offer ourselves to God and straighten our lives up. Biblical Christianity is it's by His grace. And In fact, to help you even understand it one more time, notice this. Repentance may be a condition, but not a cause of God's restored favor. You see, when we repent, it is, it is a condition, but it's not the cause. The cause is in, in God's compassion and God's love for His people. Do you know, friends, what I'm trying to tell you here? Listen, what news is this? It is so good. It is impossible for us to imagine how much God's people's misery moves God. I I was in Chicago Thursday and Friday, and one of those mornings we had devotions with the family we were staying with. And I I said, could I just go over this message with you? Because I think it will be very encouraging, and plus it will help me keep it in my mind for what I'm going to be preaching Sunday. And they said, sure, love it. And when I got to this point right here, the lady, a good Christian woman, sort of spoke out. She goes, it's, it, this is almost unbelievable. It, it's, it's almost too good to be true. I mean, it's just like, this is incredible. Do you realize this? Think of this phrase that just haunted me all week long in a good way, and that is this. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. What is that? That's seen the heart of God. The heart of God towards His people. It is the kind of love that you and I cannot begin to fathom, my friends. And look at, look what the Scripture says. In all their distress, He too was distressed. Do you understand the compassion of God? Do you begin to know the love of God? Have you rejoiced in it? Have you delighted in it? Look at in his distress, in their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is a story of the history of Israel. You see, it is not about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness to us. It's not about our holding on to God. It's about God holding on to us. And, and I, I will tell you, friends, I will tell you, this is so good for Kim Kaufman. Because you know me, if, if I've been your pastor for very long, you know I have pounded out human responsibility. I have pounded out diligence and prayerfulness and watchfulness and integrity and, and, and doing things that you don't feel like doing because you're a Christian. 
But I want to tell you my heart has been flooded with the book of Judges, and I feel as if maybe for the first time I'm getting to know God in a deeper sense maybe in a long time in my life. And that is this. He's a God that even when our own sins have ruined our lives, He doesn't give up on us. And when we're distressed, even because of our own sin, He too is distressed. And He's not a God that goes, you didn't hold your mark, get out of here, boy. He's a God that still loves us. Oh, how we can praise God for this. He can't, it's as if He can't stand to see His people suffer. In all their distress, He too is distressed. Listen. I'm sorry for crying about this, but it just, it's tears of joy, believe me. In the early 80s, I was in a tremendous trouble. I mean, I, I, it was day to day. I was in a severe trial. It was about the worst time of my life. It's the kind of thing you can't be sharing with everybody. And so, my, my folks knew about it. And you know, for that period of time, which was several months, I got letters and phone calls and visits from my dad and from my mom on a regular basis. And there were days the burden was so heavy, I didn't know how I could stand it. And you know what I kept hearing from them? I kept hearing, Kim, I can't sleep at night. I'm thinking of you all the time. Kim, I want you to know that throughout the day, on a regular basis, I'm praying for you. Kim, it is as if the problem were mine. Now, I've got to ask you something, friends. My parents, who both love me, are far from perfect. And if that's the way they would feel about their son's distress, how much more does the Heavenly Father, in your distress, can you rejoice in the fact that He too is distressed? His holiness demands that He judges His people, and so we've seen that He does it. But His love, His compassion can't hold Himself back. He can't stand it. It's like the little 18-month-old boy in the hospital. The parents just can't leave. And so our God towards us, when we're truly regenerate, we're truly one of His children, I want you to know our God is distressed when we're distressed. Our God is faithful to us. Our God will not give up. Our God will not turn His back. Our God is not the kind of God that says, He talks behind our back. He's not the kind of God that says, you did me wrong, now I'm going to do you wrong. He makes this threat to His people. He says, why don't you go to those gods that save them? And they cry out and He just can't stand it. He loves His people so much. We're just about done, so pay attention here. Look at this. How about this? God so loved the world that He gave His one unique Son. You think that was easy? We, you see, we've gotten so accustomed to the mercy of God, we go, God so loved the world, He gave His only God, so we believe that we should not perish everlasting life. Ha ha ha, not cute. Little boys can say it, little girls can say it. It should stagger us, friends, to think that God loves us. Look at this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Let me ask you a question. You go, you go. oh, but I, I just know that God's going to judge me and I know that there's this judgment. I know I'm in big trouble. I'm talking to Christians now. If you're saying that and you're not a Christian, you're right. You are in big trouble. And you need to flee to Christ. Christ. 
But if you're saying that and you're a Christian, let me ask you something. Didn't he already give his son? Didn't he give his best? Won't he also graciously give you all things? Listen, I'm going to read this closely. Please pay attention. Many Christians, many of you here right now, especially those who have a lively sense of God's judgment, but a little of His kindness, should carefully meditate on this text. You should see God's heart for His people. And you should know, and don't forget where He showed it to you in the Old Testament book of Judges, the book of God's grace. He's the the God that loves us. He's the God that's compassionate. He's a God of mercy. He's a God that if you go astray, He's going to get you. He'll sell you out. Why? Because He loves you. But He's also a God that can't stand to see you suffer and wants you to prosper and wants you to grow and wants you to develop in your character in Christ's likeness. I'll tell you, friends, you ought to, you ought to stop and think about this. So many Christians today, we saw the play D.L. Moody here a few Sundays ago. And you know what? Turn, I was just up at Moody Bible Institute at the Moody Church in Chicago touring the church uh, this week. And I, and I will tell you, friends, that the thing that turned D.L. Moody's life around was he started to get a, he started to drink at the fountain of God's love. Whereas before it was always wrath, wrath, wrath. And, and if we, if we don't have a lively sense of his kindness and his justice, how this can bring such, such joy to our hearts and how we can delight in it. But I will tell you this, you could take this message the wrong way. You could take a message like this the wrong way, and Christians do, and it goes like this. Well, you see, we sin, God loves us, it doesn't matter if we're faithful, He's always faithful. All right, baby, that's good news, man, let's go. I'll see you maybe in, you know, Easter Sunday. I'm going to go out and live like I want. Now, friends, if you think like that, that's called antinomianism. It's an absolute, God hates that. It makes Christians that know the Lord sick. And it's wrong. Because God's grace should never be, Paul said, what should we say in response to this? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer, of course, is no, God forbid. But here's the right way to respond to this message. And I think you ought to leave here dancing with joy. And that is this, you ought to leave rejoicing in such a God as this, delighting in Him, worshiping Him, praising Him, that there is such a God as the God of the Bible who is that committed to you if you're one of His children, that is, if you're in Christ. And you ought to really rejoice. I mean, you, you ought to be happy about this news. You, you, you don't look so happy, but you really should be. All right? You really should be. Well, let us pray. Father, it is, it is like the lady said to me this weekend. It's almost unbelievable. It's such good news. And it really is. We thank you. We delight in your compassion and your love for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.